Now mother walked behind my father holding herself erect, her chin high, looking neither right nor left. In the sunlight, her golden coat seemed lit with a hundred flames. The air shone brighter around her than the rest of us, filled with haughtiness and beauty and the scent of sandalwood. Searching the crowded streets once more for Yalfa, then Judas, I began to repeat my secret prayer, moving my lips but making no sound. Lord our God, hear my prayer, the prayer of my heart. Bless the largeness inside me, no matter how I fear it. The words calmed me as the city flowed past, magnificent structures that awed me each time I ventured out. Antipas had filled Sepphoris with imposing public buildings, a royal treasury, frescoed basilicas, a bathhouse, sewers, roofed sidewalks, and paved streets laid out in perfect Roman grids. Large villas like Father's were common throughout the city, and Antipas's palace was as rich as any kingly residence. He'd been reconstructing the city since Rome raised it all those years ago when Judas lost his parents. And what had risen from the ashes was a wealthy metropolis that rivaled any but Jerusalem. Lately, Antipas had begun construction on a Roman amphitheater on the northern slope of the city that would seat 4,000 people. Father himself had come up with the idea as a way for Antipas to impress the emperor Tiberius. Judas said it was just another way to shove Rome down our throats. Father, however, wasn't finished with his scheming. He advised Antipas to mint his own coins, but break from Roman custom by leaving off his image and replacing it with a menorah. The ingenious gesture gave Antipas the appearance of reverencing the same mosaic law I'd broken earlier that morning. The people called Herod Antipas the fox, but my father was the slyer one. Was I like him, as Judas had implied? As the market came into sight, the crowd thickened, we plowed past clusters of men, members of court, scribes, government officials, and priests. Children hauled sheaves of herbs, barley, and wheat, armloads of onions, doves in stick cages. Women bore wares on their heads with bewildering steadiness. Jars of oil, baskets of late harvest olives, bolts of cloth, stone pitchers, even three-legged tables, whatever they could sell, all the while greeting one another. Shilama, Shilama. I never saw these women without envy for how they came and went freely without the bondage of a chaperone. Surely peasantry was not all bad. Inside the basilica, the commotion intensified along with the airless heat. I began to sweat inside my elaborate coat. I swept my eyes over the cavernous room, over row after row of stalls and market carts. There was an odor of sweat, charcoal, skewered meat, and the putrid salted fish from Magdala. I pushed the back of my hand to my nostrils to lessen the stench and felt the soldier who tromped behind us nudge me forward. Up ahead, my mother stopped midway along a row of stalls that sold goods from the silk route, Chinese paper, silks, and spices. She idly inspected an azure cloth while my father continued onto the row's end where he lingered, his eyes roaming the multitudes. From the moment we'd set out, I'd feared we were walking towards something calamitous, sensing it not only in the oddness of our expedition, but in the minute movements of my parents' faces. And yet here was my mother serenely shopping for silk, and my father patiently watching the crowd. Had she come to trade after all? My breath left me in a rush of relief. I didn't notice the small man who approached my father, not until the crowd parted a bit and I saw him stride forward and greet father with a bow. He was clothed in an expensive coat of deep purple, and a towering cone-shaped hat, perhaps the tallest hat my eyes had ever beheld. 
which drew attention to his exceptionally short stature. My mother laid down the sheath of azure. Looking back, she waved me forward. Who is father's companion? I asked, reaching her side. He is Nathaniel ben Hanania, your father's acquaintance. He could have been a boy of 12 except for the voluminous beard that plunged to his chest like twisted hanks of flax fiber. He plucked at it, his ferret eyes darting toward me, then away. He owns not one but two estates, she informed me. One grows dates, the other olives. Then one of those small nameless moments occurred that would loom large only later, a sweep of color at the edge of my eye. Turning toward it, I spotted a young man, a peasant, with uplifted hands and long strands of spun thread looped about his outspread fingers, red, green, lilac, yellow, blue. The threads streamed to his knees like bright falls of water. In time, they would remind me of rainbows, and I would wonder if God had sent them as a sign of hope as he'd done for Noah, something for me to cling to amid the drowned ruins that awaited. But right then, the sight was nothing more than a lovely distraction. A girl not much older than I was attempting to coil the lengths of thread into neat horals in order to sell them. I could tell they were tinted with cheap vegetable dyes. The young man laughed, a deep, booming laugh, and I noticed he was wiggling his fingers, making the threads flutter, rendering them impossible to capture. The girl laughed too, though she was trying very hard not to. There was so much unexpectedness in the scene, so much gladness that I fixed on it. I'd seen women offering their fingers as sorting pegs, never men. What manner of man assists a woman with the bawling of her yarn? He appeared older than I by several years, as old as 20. He had a short, dark beard and thick hair that fell to his chin, as was the custom. I watched him push a lock behind one ear, where it refused to stay, tumbling back onto his face. His nose was long, his cheekbones broad, and his skin the color of almonds. He wore a coarse, rough-weave tunic and an outer garment sewn with tzitzit, the blue tassels marking him as a follower of God's laws. I wondered if he could be a Pharisee of the fanatical sort, one of those unyielding followers of Shammai who were known to travel ten fathoms out of the way to avoid encountering one unrighteous soul. I glanced back at Mother, worried she would observe me staring, but she was absorbed in her own enthrallment with Father's acquaintance. The haggling in the market faded, and I heard Father's raised voice cut through the commotion. One thousand denarii and a portion of your date groves. Their meeting, it seemed, had progressed to an impassioned exchange of business. The girl in the yarn stall finished winding her threads and placed the last orb on a wooden plank that served as a shelf. I'd thought at first she was the young man's wife, but seeing now how closely she resembled him, I decided they must be siblings. As if feeling the intensity of my stare, the man suddenly looked around, his gaze falling on me like a veil I could almost feel, the heat of it touching my shoulders, my neck, my cheeks. I should have looked away, but I could not. His eyes were the most remarkable thing about him, not for their beauty, though they were beautiful in their way, widely spaced and black as my blackest ink. But it wasn't that. There was a tiny fire in them, an expressiveness I could see even from where I stood. It was as if his thoughts floated in the wet, dark light of them, wanting to be read. I perceived amusement in them, curiosity, an unguarded interest, there was no trace of disdain for my wealth, no judgment, no pious smugness. I saw generosity and kindness, 
and something else less accessible, a hurt of some kind. While it's true I thought myself skilled at reading the language of the face, I didn't know whether I really saw all of these things, or I wanted to see them. The moment stretched beyond propriety. He smiled slightly, a faint lifting of his lips, then turned back to the woman I thought to be his sister. Anna, I heard mother say, her eyes trailing from me to the peasants. Your father has summoned you. What does he want of me? I asked. But already it was breaking over me, the truth of why we were here, the diminutive man in purple, the business matter. Your father wishes to present you to Nathaniel Ben-Hanania, mother was saying, who wishes to see you more closely. I looked at the man and felt something tear beneath the flat bone in my chest. They mean to betroth me. Panic started again, this time like a wave in my belly. My hands began to tremble, then my jaw. I whirled toward her. You cannot betroth me, I cried. I haven't yet come of age. She took my arm and whisked me farther away, so Nathaniel Ben-Hanania could not hear my objections or see the horror on my face. You can stop perpetuating your lie. Shipra found your bleeding rags. Did you think you could keep it from me? I am not witless. I am only angered that you've carried out such a contemptible deceit. I wanted to scream at her, to hurl words like stones. Where do you think I learned such deceit? From you, mother, who hides chaste berries and wild rue in the storage room.